Hi folks, it's me, Dave. I know there's already been an episode this week and one coming on Sunday, but I kind of wanted to give you a little something extra due to the hiatus. So this is a revisit to Daredevil Yellow number one, an alternate take, if you will. Originally, I approached upcoming episodes with the idea of a tweak to the format, in which the show would be seasonal, kind of like a TV show. I've abandoned that in favor of getting back to normal, so to speak, but not before two episodes were recorded. Now, I did go back and redo the episodes, which is what you're going to hear normally on Sundays. And since I did them from the ground up, I decided why waste decent audio? Why not give you a peek behind the so-called creative process? So while a lot of my thought process towards the book is fairly similar, there's a few different insights and little extras in there. You'll note that the sound is a little bit off on the opening, I did try to streamline the opening and closing, and it just didn't really work. So, for now, sit back and enjoy an episode that almost was, and I will be back on Sunday with Daredevil Yellow, number two. Justice League International, Blahaha Podcast. A new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We'll be going issue by issue, in release order, tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter. Batman. Dr. Fate. Black Canary. Fire. Ice. Maxwell Lord. Oberon. Captain Marvel. Rocket Red. Captain Adam. Mr. Miracle. Guy Gardner. Booster Gold. Blue Beetle, Nort, and many, many more. Justice League International, Blahaha Podcast, coming March 2016 as part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, the show all about Daredevil, Marvel's man without fear, lawyer by day, vigilante by night. I am your host, J. David Weeder. You can, of course, call me Dave, returning from a three-month hiatus. It was intended to be two weeks. Kind of got extended, and I want to talk a little bit about that, as well as why you're not seeing this presented as episode 78. And the truth is, this episode kind of represents a new beginning for the show. It's not a reboot, it's more of a rejuvenation, a redirection, refreshing of the normal theme. Not much is really going to change in the long scheme, except for some tweaks to the format overall. As you heard, it's going to be the same theme song I'm still going to be looking at, usually a single issue of Daredevil or a Daredevil-related title per episode. And while the show will still technically be weekly, it will not be 52 weeks out of every year. Instead, it will be presented as seasons, much like most of your television shows. Usually around 15 episodes or so, somewhere in that range. That's the what. Here's the why. The reason for the hiatus and the reason the hiatus got extended was that I was kind of hitting a creative block with the show. I still wanted to do the show, I still somewhat enjoyed it, but for some reason I kept hitting a mental wall, and I could not get episodes to come together. Don't know why, I don't have anything great to offer there, it was just a complete stone wall. And of course, when you hit that kind of thing, you want to explore exactly what brought you to that, 
What are the factors that are really working against you? What are your weaknesses? So I looked back over my own podcasting history. Where were the errors? Where were the problems? One of the things that stood out to me was that on shows that I produce, especially weekly shows, they would run about 30 to 35 episodes before they would hit a brick wall. So on a calendar year, I'd run about 30 to 40 episodes. Now that tells me I am not really cut out for a weekly show, at least in terms of 52 weeks a year every year. That's just the reality. Creatively, I tend to hit really hard and then really burn out fast. There's nothing wrong with this. To my credit, over the last five years, thanks to being involved with other shows, my output has been roughly about six and a half years worth of one-week episodes. So, somewhere it does balance out. But realizing and accepting that I'm good for about 30 to 40 episodes out of a calendar year just brought me to the realization that I should plan around that. Instead of starting 2016 planning out 52 weeks, I should plan for a chunk of episodes at a time and also plan for the hiatus that seems to inevitably happen even if I don't intend it to. Another factor to choosing to go into a seasonal format instead of an ongoing weekly is that the podcasting field is now very, very crowded, especially in the area of comic book podcasts. There's a ton of them. As a podcast listener, I know how frustrating it can be to have all these choices out here, to latch onto one, to fall behind because of those other choices, because by all means, listen to as many shows as you can, but there's a frustration level and a certain abandonment to shows that continuously pump out good episodes week after week, but you're about 10, 15 episodes behind. It keeps going. You're never actually catching up, not without putting in a lot of commitment. By doing this as a seasonal format, as in a number of episodes, in this case 15, for the first season, I do allow for people to catch up, to get back on board. Everybody can be on the same page. One thing I did notice on the hiatus is that there was a lot of movement on the older episodes sequentially going forward, so people were catching up and getting on board, and that's exciting. So I want to allow for that in the ever-changing podcast realm. What this allows for on my side of the equation is a little bit more room to do some extra research and do some more focused episodes. It becomes a matter of quality over quantity. So doing the show with seasons has a lot of benefits. There's a little frustration there. I can understand where people would get frustrated with a big gap, but now it's part of the plan. I turned a negative into a positive. It's a very daredevil thing to do, as we're going to see this week. Now to get specific about this week and the upcoming 14 weeks that are going to follow here in this first season, what I am looking at is taking a theme and building a series of episodes around a specific theme. And in this first season, the big theme is going to be Origins. Now, yes, that means I am putting the Frank Miller stuff to the side for quite some time. I don't know when I'm going to come back to that. I'm just trying to follow my muse. And right now, my muse is taking me back to Daredevil's yellow period, the time when he wore his original costume, his formative period. And I think that has a little bit to do with the Walgreens-exclusive Daredevil yellow costume figure that I've suddenly fallen completely in love with. And at one point, I even considered just doing a reread and recovering of the first six issues or so of Daredevil, but I did abandon that for a better way to go about this. A way that allows us to look at material we haven't technically covered before. And that idea of exploring Daredevil's origin kind of expanded to covering origins of other characters. So after we finish the six issues of Daredevil Yellow, we're also going to look at Daredevil Season 1, an alternative take on the first six issues or so. We're going to look at the minus one issues of both Daredevil and Elektra and really explore Elektra's origins as well as the Black Widows. It's going to be a heck of a season. I'm really excited about this in the next 14 episodes in a way that I haven't been in a while. So to summarize, the show is going back weekly, but it will be done in seasons. So this will be season one. Season two will be sometime in the fall, since this season takes us to about mid-June. This season, we're covering the theme of origins. I have no idea what next season is going to be, and I'm kind of excited about that, to be honest with you. And with that, I'm ready to jump into this week's book, the first issue of Daredevil Yellow. 
To give you some background, our creative team here, our primary creative team, more accurately, is Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale. Daredevil was part of their Marvel color books, which included Spider-Man Blue and Hulk Gray, and now includes the much-delayed Captain America White. Much like their work over at DC, which is primarily with Batman with Long Halloween and Dark Victory, and a little bit of Superman with Superman for All Seasons, these color books explored the early days of the Marvel characters. And I want to say it gave an emphasis to the word character. These miniseries served as sort of an analysis of the core concept of the character, with a modern view at deconstructing and kind of quote-unquote correcting things, more or less adding some rationalization to certain goofy aspects of the Silver Age. And while I count myself as a fan of Superman for All Seasons as well as Batman The Long Halloween, I was kind of curious how Daredevil would come out under the watchful eye of Loeb and Sale. Thus came Daredevil Yellow Number 1, bearing an August 2001 cover date. Now speaking of the cover, the image of Daredevil in his original costume looms over a retro-looking New York neighborhood as Jack Murdock walks alongside young Matt Murdock past Fogwell's gym. I don't mean to make a pun here, but Sale sold me on the yellow costume with this image. Somehow it was his image that really drew me back, and that in turn is sort of on the shoulders of the irredeemable Shag, who after the early episodes of this show gave me some crap about not liking the yellow costume while wearing a yellow costume drawn by Sale on his t-shirt. So if anything, Shag is responsible for the upcoming five episodes and this one included. The idea of this ghostly specter looming over this really old scene of Matt... I mean, look at him. He couldn't be six, seven. It's likely before the conversation with Jack in which Matt made his fateful promise. Something just feels right about this. The idea that Daredevil's looming over them. He's in the background. It's part of it, but it's not really in the image. At least not story-wise. Something just feels right. You have Fogwell's here. You have young Matt and Jack guiding his son. That, for me, was key, since in many ways, Jack continues to guide Matt well beyond his childhood and well beyond Jack's own death. The neighborhood just looks spot on. I love the fact that Fogwells is here. It feels aged. It feels old, but not in the modern sense. There's no graffiti. The buildings still look relatively well kept, where they would be run down in more 80s, 90s concept. And the core color of yellow itself lends itself to the sort of sepia tones we associate with flashbacks. So it kind of naturally does exactly what it sets out to do, which is give you a retroactive feel. It's simple. There's nothing to it. And yet, it really works for me. There is nothing I don't like about this cover. I'll be completely honest. It sets our time frame, and it sets our mood. Moving into the interior of the book, we of course have writer Jeff Loeb and artist Tim Sale. They are joined by letterer Wes Abbott, and perhaps the MVP of a color book, Matt Hollingsworth, who does colors here. And I just kind of have to point out the irony that Tim Sale and Jeff Loeb are known for their color books, and yet Tim Sale is actually colorblind. The story for the first issue is entitled The Championship Season, and of course the whole series can be found reprinted in both hardcover and trade paperback. Please use the Two True Freaks link to Amazon, and also on the Marvel app and Comixology for purchase in both individual issues and collected editions. Or, if you want to go the cheap route, it's on Marvel Unlimited in its entirety. And just to set you up right here, I'm going to go back to the traditional synopsis notes format, rather than the ongoing discussion that I had when the show left off. As much as I liked the discussion format on paper, it didn't bear out in terms of recording or in editing. So, back to normal. Except I'm going to do the synopsis in one big chunk instead of splitting it up, just for sheer discussion purposes. And so the synopsis for Daredevil Yellow Number 1 goes thus. 
The story opens in the present day with Daredevil in his red costume leaping around the streets of New York. He is writing a letter in his head to the recently departed Karen Page, and as the letter explains, Matt is afraid. He's been destabilized by the death of Karen, and so he returns to Fogwell's gym. At Fogwell's, amidst his memories, his mind flashes back to his college days as his father was making his way up the boxing food chain thanks to the fixer, and Matt was nailing his grades at Columbia Law. The story moves to Matt and Foggy having dinner with Jack, and through the clarity of memory, Matt realizes that the signs of Jack's downfall were there all along. The story then takes us to the fateful final fight of Jack Murdoch, in which he decides not to take the dive that the fixer demands and wins the match. After the fight, Matt visits Jack in the locker room and Jack says that he will retire now. After all, a man should leave the party when it's roaring. Soon, the fixer and his enforcer Slade come to call as Matt and Foggy head home and both fall asleep in Jack's apartment. But Matt is awakened by the sound of a gunshot and instinctively runs to the scene of the shooting to find the dead body of his father, Jack Murdoch, and the smell of pistachio nuts. The fixer and Slade are taken in, but they face the judge on the day of their bail hearing, but both are able to weasel out of the charges since the evidence is circumstantial. Matt is angry but swears that one day they will get their day in court. And from there, life moves forward as Matt and Foggy graduate from Columbia Law School and set up their firm. But Matt is not satisfied, and late one night, he fashions together a yellow and brown costume emblazoned with a big letter D on the chest. When it is finished, a new figure stands ready to seek justice for his father in a way that Matt Murdock couldn't. The familiar form of Daredevil. Alright, let's talk about Daredevil Yellow number one. Starting, of course, at the beginning. The narrative is formed from a letter written by Matt to Karen Page, which brings up two pieces of information. One, in the present day, Karen Page was killed by Bullseye. This was during the Guardian Devil story arc and apparently caused a fluff even though I wasn't really upset about it. Now my opinion on that story has changed where I do feel remorseful now, having gotten to know Karen on a different level. But at the time, eh. Secondly, and extremely important to our discussion, is the fact that this is a letter from Matt, drawn from his own memory. And since memory is fallible, that means some of the facts can get jumbled. That gives the writer a little bit of looseness in terms of addressing things we've seen in print before, namely in the first six issues of the original Daredevil series. It's a license to stretch and kind of change a little bit of continuity without contradicting it. And that is very important. That's why I lean to Daredevil Yellow versus something like Man Without Fear, in terms of the original timeline that the original series presented. Yes, Man Without Fear became canon, and I love Man Without Fear, but Man Without Fear also changed irrevocably the timeline of events, and doesn't mesh up with the original telling, which is fine, but we are exploring Daredevil's yellow period, which doesn't even happen in Man Without Fear and doesn't jive with that series. And on the very first page as the letter begins, it actually reads, Dear Karen, I'm Afraid, which along with the title sets a certain tone. Now, of course, yellow is the color associated with fear, and Daredevil is the man without fear. The irony is quite clear, both in terms of the title as well as Daredevil's original costume, which kind of has a nice comical feel to it, at least in the ironic sense, not in the ha-ha sense. But also, we're looking at a story where Matt is a man, for the first time, perhaps, facing and really facing some of his demons. Not just the demons of the present day, but the core to the demons that are presented. Losing Karen kind of represents an analog to losing Jack. Both are people Daredevil cared about very, very deeply. Both present a certain thought process, that being the five stages of grief, that are on display. Also ironic in the storytelling sense is that this first page does have Daredevil in his red costume, and it's actually made up of all red tones. So you move from the bright yellow of the cover right into these reds, and it's actually right up in Matt's face, so you get the literal idea 
that this is a man facing his demons. Because we have Matt here swinging at us head on. Now as we move from that first page into our first real wide shot, which is actually in print, looks like a double page splash of Daredevil leaping across these rooftops. The background, which is highly detailed and evokes this very quiet evening, very lonely with just a light breeze blowing. But even though it evokes that, it's all in grayscale, which is appropriate for Tim Sale being colorblind. However, Daredevil is presented as red. What this tells me is that Daredevil is completely inside of his own head, his own thoughts, his own feelings. Everything else is muted. Even though we have Daredevil leaping, swinging, jumping, etc., all of this is likely just muscle memory. He's not really there. He's then. Another place, another time. This is some fantastic usage of color, which of course evokes the theme of the series of color books. Color is important to storytelling, especially in a comic book medium. And we come to Fogwell's gym, which I think is great because not only is our story here in yellow beginning, of course, it also started us off in the original Daredevil number one. So Daredevil is coming back to where Daredevil began, the series, and pretty much the character in a lot of ways. There are two things about Fogwell's I want to point out, three really. The first one is that there's police tape wrapped around Fogwell's gym, and for the life of me, I can't remember why. There may have been something in Bendis' run that would have been ongoing at this time that signaled it out, but I'm not sure what it was. The second thing I want to point out, which I find delicious, is that there is a window on the second floor that is boarded up. I just want to earmark that for next week's episode. Within Fogwell's, we see Matt come up against a poster of Kid Murdoch, his own father, going up against Big Guy Moore. Which is, of course, more of Jack's glory days, which is, I guess, to some extent, a theme we're going to see a lot in this issue is that these people had moments where they weren't Dark Avengers of the Night or Down on Their Luck boxers. They had moments of greatness. Now, seeing that makes me want to mention this, since we're tying this back to Daredevil number one in a lot of ways. If you open to the first panel of the story, it's just a shot of Fogwell's gym. This was a little nugget that I found recently in that issue. If you look at that page, you will see two distinct posters along the doorframe. The first one is for Romero versus Carson. This was a real fight that took place in England. This was Luis Romero and Eddie Carson, both Southpaw boxers. Bear in mind, this is in 1964, the very first issue of Daredevil. So it has a nice real-world tie, as well as accidentally informing Jack Murdoch's character as well, since Jack was a Southpaw, and Matt, likewise, took his left-handedness from his father. Even more of a standout in that first issue was a poster for Benny Leonard, who was a real boxer. In fact, he was the lightweight champ in 1917. The interesting thing about Benny Leonard was that he did become the champ. He retired as the champ. But thanks to the stock market crash of 1929, in which he lost his fortune, he had to come back as an aging boxer and fight once more. And he did fine, but still, that analog to Jack Murdoch is pretty darn clear to me. Whether or not that was the intent, I'm not sure, but darn it, it's there. Again, 1964, Daredevil number one, the very first panel showing Fogwell's gym. Now to bring it back to Daredevil Yellow number one, we have Matt saying that he needs Karen to help him find the man without fear once more. And that really makes these first few pages in which we're seeing the modern day Daredevil sing. This isn't just a framing sequence to bring us from the modern day to the past. This is a justification for our trip to the past. He's trying to find himself again, or at least the old version of himself. So where else would he look but the past? When looking for the construction of something, just look at the basic components, and that's exactly what Matt, in story, and Jeff Loeb, as the writer, are forming with these opening sequences. Which means they managed to tie it in without it being superfluous. And of course, we do go back to the past, going to the college years, which skips over a large part of Matt's childhood. 
Now, who is Matt Murdock in college? A lot of things have happened at this point. Let's look at his birth. His mother abandoned him, even though he doesn't realize it. Well, writes Matt believes she died. Leaping to the college years leaves out the seminal scene, the promise, which is a big part of who Matt is. Let's talk about this promise. It's not just a simple promise to him. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a daredevil. This is a promise to Jack Murdock, somebody he holds in the highest of esteem. It's a damn oath is what it is. An unbreakable, solemn oath. And his promise is so devout that he takes these slings and arrows that the other kids of the neighborhood sling at him. He keeps on going. He doesn't back down from that oath. And of course, the insult that the other kids throw at him is the word daredevil. I'm taking the long way around to tell a fairly simple point. Who is Matt Murdock at this stage? We join him in college. Who has he been? What are the building blocks of Matt's psyche? Let's think about this. Matt spent a lot of time generally isolated from the other people his age, his contemporaries. Not necessarily antisocial, but so driven by that promise that he's somewhat cut off. Now, I do believe he had some social interaction, but no real friends. Nobody that he was extremely close to. And for those that are continuity nitpickers, yes, Daredevil number 209 did mention a friend named John Squarejohn. However, it also stated that these two drifted away pretty quickly when John joined a gang. Matt continued down his studious path. So Matt's only solid, real human connection was Jack. And you combine that connection with the idea that Matt leaving his apartment was just a threat. He was likely to get beat up by the other kids or older kids or, heck, the criminals in the neighborhood. So not only was Jack his only human connection, Jack was his guardian. Jack represented safety. And that's why Jack is so exalted in Matt's mind is that Jack was his first and only real human connection until he got to college and met Foggy. Let's bring it back in here to the story. We're at college, Columbia University Law School. First off, I want to mention that when I covered Daredevil number one, I kind of groused at the idea that Matt was so young and wondered if there was an accelerated law program. Well, yes, there is. Per Columbia's website, there is a six-year law degree. It doesn't quite smooth over the timeline, but it is there, and it makes a big difference to me. Secondly, Matt is at Columbia Law School, one of the most prestigious law schools in the country, Ivy League. And Matt's college years are going to be the subject of a couple of other episodes down the line, so I'm not going to go too far down this rabbit hole other than to say Matt achieved his promise in spades. And that's kind of part of why the story jumps to this point. Not only did he keep that promise, and he's on the path to become a lawyer, he also has a friend in Foggy, which makes a big difference from Matt's childhood. Along those lines, we also see that Jack Murdoch is now a contender. He's ranking up towards a championship fight. The fact is, Matt flashes back to here because this is his most golden period in his life. Jack is out there. Jack is making his dream come true. Matt's making his dream come true. He's got a great friend in Foggy. This is it, folks. This is Matt's happiest time frame. So Matt's mind in this time of darkness is going back to the brightest spot he can remember. That's some damn good storytelling. And of course, this also means that Foggy is not just his oldest friend. It's probably his first real friend outside of Jack. So Jack and Foggy are somewhat connected as Matt's first two human connections. And of course, there's a third in Electra. I'm going to save Electra for a few more episodes down the road after we do Daredevil Yellow. But of course, she's there. And of course, hindsight is 2020. Matt is seeing the pieces now that the fixer was putting things in place to set Jack up. Now, of course, at the age Matt is here, as well as his just relative disposition, his naivete, if you will, Matt's just happy to see his dad fighting and winning. He just doesn't really clue in at that time. Now, I do want to point out real quick, as we go from the modern day to the flashback, 
In this dorm room, the walls are yellow. Outside the window, the New York skyline is blue with a little bit of gray mixed in. So essentially, this book inverts our normal storytelling principles. Typically, we see modern stuff in normal, vibrant color with flashbacks in sepia tones, black and white, etc. And I think it should be pointed out that we do jump to the college age. We don't see the actual accident that took Matt's sight and gave him his gifts. In many ways, I start to wonder about that, and I wonder if that's his darkest moment, if there's a certain piece of him that feels that his actions on that day, saving the old man, felt like breaking the promise to Jack. And that's an interesting idea I want to chew on for just a moment, that Matt takes this action, saving this old man from getting hit by a truck. In turn, Matt is blinded. It could be that Matt at that age, which would have been, what, 12, 13? Matt feels that breaking that promise to Jack resulted in a penance in his blindness and in the senses that were probably bombarding him. Now, of course, Matt did learn to control it via Stick, and that's another episode down the road as well. But we know that Stick taught him how to use his senses and his body towards martial arts. Now that I've deviated off course, let's come back to the book where we come to this restaurant scene. This scene is beautifully detailed. The patrons, the decor, everything looks right. It feels real and tangible, and it feels like it's at a different time. So, for example, if I were to walk into this same restaurant today, this railing would be tarnished. The tables would be kind of wobbly, etc. Now, here is where an idea is presented. One that kind of supports what I've been talking about uh, in terms of Matt's connection to Jack. Thanks to Matt's senses, which are likely keyed into Jack just by proximity, living with the man, knowing the man, having that human connection with Jack. Matt feels Jack's heartbeat as if it's part of his own body. And that kind of has another level of connection to Jack for me. Just a real physical, tangible line between these two. Now later they're going to use this to stab us in our own heart. And Loeb goes well out of his way to make sure Jack is likable and affable. And actually sort of accidentally makes this neat connection for me. Because Jack is a little bit goofy. As we see here with the ketchup bottle, he shakes a little too much, smacks it too hard, and it hits some other ladies. Giving a goofy quality to Jack. This is a quality we haven't really seen much of in Jack. But it's also a quality that makes Jack resemble Foggy just a bit. And that goes a long way with Matt bonding with Foggy. There's a part of his dad in him, or at least a part that reminds Matt of his dad to be more accurate. Let's not get creepy here. And as Jack pulls out the money, Matt can smell the cheap cigars. And once again, in the modern day is realizing, crap, this was all right in front of me. And I did nothing because I realized nothing. And of course, we jump to the fateful final fight of Jack Murdoch at Madison Square Garden. Now, you know me in geography. And I looked at Madison Square Garden and realized something very special and why this location is important to having it be Jack's final fight. In terms of New York, Madison Square Garden is just outside the edge of the Upper East Side of Hell's Kitchen. If one's goal is to get out of Hell's Kitchen, Jack did it, literally. Physically, this fight is happening outside that neighborhood. His fight, which is the ticket to the big times, the ticket to moving on. And with that comes that layer of irony that Jack had made it. He was out of the kitchen, he was having the fight of his life. And just as he won that fight, his life was taken away. Jeff Loeb, if your goal was to shoot an arrow through my heart, bullseye. Now, fellow continuity nerds will realize this was kind of where we had a change. Not a complete contradiction, but a change in continuity. Jack's opponent in this fight, as it's presented here, is Crusher Creel, rather than Davis, as we saw in Daredevil number one, and I'm okay with this. This isn't an important change to the story. The location and circumstances are the same as it pertains to Matt becoming Daredevil. In fact, I think this enhances it since it ties it into the greater Marvel Universe. As Crusher Creel, down the road from here, would become the villain, the Absorbing Man. And of course, from here, Jack makes the decision. 
We're talking the decision, the ultimate decision, the fulcrum point in this whole Daredevil saga. Jack decides to put his all into the fight and decides to win despite the consequences that would come from such an action, defying the fixer. And of course, Jack wins, which brings a certain fulfillment factor. He fulfills his main goal, which is to make his son proud and teach his son to not be afraid. Then we have this quote that really bothers me a lot. Because yes, we have that great uh, victory, internal, moral, whatever you want to call it. But he says to Matt, a man should leave the party when it's roaring. Which to me has a certain degree of selfishness to Jack. That he made a decision based on what he wanted. Not what he needed. Not what Matt needed. What he wanted. To me, that makes me think that the standing up to Creel and finishing the fight was a selfish, prideful, egotistical choice. Without any real tangible thought to Matt's well-being going forward. With Jack gone, Matt is alone, and Jack should have realized that. This, to me, is Jack's biggest downfall, his pride. Now, of course, Matt doesn't see it that way. Matt, who puts Jack on a pedestal, who thinks Jack was the greatest thing since sliced bread? No, Matt thinks this was Jack's victory, when really it was Jack's failure. And in a lot of ways, perhaps Jack's failure, that ego, that pride, is what is beating at Matt internally now. The fact that he would fail to save Karen Page at the hands of his greatest enemy who had already killed a girl that he loved. Matt's pride is torn up and that's where his fear is stemming from. So again, whether intentional on Loeb's part or not, the story kind of hits at the heart of what's going on inside Matt's head. So far, we've kind of followed the plot of Daredevil number one, at least the flashback portion of Daredevil number one, with a slight addition of a restaurant scene and Matt seeing his father post-fight, both of which were non-consequential. However, here's where things change. Matt hears the gunshot. And the greatest piece of this is that Matt hears it, starts awake, so you see his eyes flying open, and behind him, an homage to the Bill Everett panel in which Matt makes his promise to Jack. Suffice it to say, the symbolism is there, and it's maybe the most heavy-handed moment in the book. But these royal blue tones are occurring as we get to the scene of the crime, and the only thing in color is Jack's body and Matt, symbolizing that connection. And Matt mentions that he felt Jack's heartbeat vanish. Something he could feel within his own body is now gone. What's happening here is, since there's a physical register to Jack's heartbeat, within Matt, that is gone. They have taken something from him that's as close to literally being a part of Matt as you can get without actually being inside of his own body. And Matt mentions that there are pistachio nuts. Now these are going to become slightly important as we go forward. And those pistachio nuts take us to the next scene, which is the court hearing, which I'm so happy that this was put on the docket. We're going to see the Fixer and Slade situation play out a little bit more than we did in Daredevil number one. Now this not only stands as a moment that is added to the story but doesn't contradict the original much like Matt finding his father dead, this also tries to ground the reason why Matt becomes Daredevil a little bit more in real world tangible terms. When reading Daredevil number one, it's easy to infer that Fixer and Slade have never even been taken in for questioning. Here we see that there is absolutely no case against them. The system which Matt firmly believes in, and that's within the book here, is failing Matt on a personal level. It's not even bringing them to trial. And that makes a bit more sense as to why Matt would take such desperate, extreme measures. We have no murder weapon, no fingerprints. Which also implies that there's no beating as we would see in Man Without Fear and Battle and Jack Murdoch. The only piece of evidence is pistachio nuts by the side of the body, Slade's favorite snack. So you can see why the anger would well up and why Matt starts down a path of thinking outside the box, outside of his legal system that he loves so much. And of course, the book wraps up with Matt suiting up. And I want to talk about the suit and coming back to the Daredevil Yellow era here. Because if you go back to the original first and second episodes of the show, I did my best to get through the Yellow era as fast as possible. 
and I quite disliked the yellow costume. However, as I mentioned, via a t-shirt worn by the irredeemable Shag along with Tim Sale's depiction, I've had a bit of an about face on this costume. Now, the costume is based on an acrobat's costume or a boxer's costume, and that's kind of where it got the hooks into me. Looking at pictures of Benny Leonard, which I mentioned earlier in the episode, a real-world boxer, his workout attire was sweats and a singlet. So essentially, Matt is wearing an image of a boxer. The mask represents, to some extent, Jack's ghost. This is a boxer avenging a crime against a boxer done by boxing promoters. Now, secondly, in the original costume, we only had the single letter D, which is actually grammatically appropriate, just not quite as aesthetically pleasing as Wally Wood's design, with the double D logo that exists today. To me, this evokes not only the name Daredevil, it also evokes sort of the scarlet letter. Like Hester Prynne in that book who wore the scarlet A for adultery, Daredevil is wearing a D to represent a specific crime. And of course, Matt takes the name Daredevil, those taunts, those threats that he had as a kid, coming back in a different way. Matt's not just seeking justice for Jack, he's facing his demons for the first time. And finally, in terms of this original look, before the more familiar Billy Club, we had Daredevil's cane, which is beautiful. Matt is essentially changing his cane into a weapon. He's turning his disability into his strength, which is kind of the core theme of Daredevil. And this is all right here on the page, just in a simple image of Daredevil's original costume. All of this in an identity that allows him to skirt the promise he made to Jack. I've kind of spoken about this before, but Daredevil is very much Matt Murdock's sneaky lawyer's trick. After all, it's Daredevil, not Matt Murdock, who's going after the Fixer in a physical capacity. Therefore, his promise, his solemn oath to Jack, his most exalted human being on Earth, is kept. The entire concept of Daredevil is just damn beautiful when you think about it, and pretty well formed from the first issue, as Loeb and Sailor very effectively, unintentionally so, pointing out. So let's bring this into a final general verdict on this issue. Does this issue, standing alone on its own merits, does it satisfy as a reading experience? Art-wise, I believe it totally satisfies. It made me rethink Daredevil's yellow costume. Now, Tim Sale's kind of an acquired taste, that's for sure. His Superman looked different from any other Superman. His Batman looked very different from any other Batman, and oddly enough, for different reasons. His Superman was a bit puffy, his Batman was a bit gaunt. Oftentimes, his art style can be a bit off-putting, but if you stick around, it becomes very, very endearing, and it does not off-put in Daredevil's case. For some reason, unlike any other character I've seen him draw... Sale's Daredevil makes sense. And I think the core of that is that Sale manages to evoke the Bill Everett style we saw in Daredevil number one, while not aping that style. We still get that quasi-Golden Age feel that Everett brought to the book, without actually falling into some of the weaknesses of that first issue. Now, story-wise, character is the focus. Far, far ahead of plot, which is good because this is a story that's been told before. What we are looking at in this story is not the actual beats that we saw plot-wise. What we're looking at is the mechanics of Daredevil and Matt Murdock. On that level, it succeeds. We get a little bit more understanding of why he put on the costume rather than how he put the costume together. And more so, this particular miniseries manages to tie into the status quo of the book roughly around that time, maybe a little bit before the current issues that were out on stands, but still into the modern day. And it does so seamlessly. Is this miniseries decompressed? Yes, it is. 
However, I think this issue follows a certain phase of this exploration of character up to a natural stopping point. The fact that it's the point where you really wanted to reach doesn't make it bad. It makes you want to come back for next issue, which of course we're going to in one week's time. But for now, that brings us to an end of another episode. Next week, Daredevil embarks on his first and most important adventure to get justice for his father. Oh, and Nelson and Murdoch gain a new secretary in Daredevil Yellow number two in seven days. Until then, always remember that justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a J. David Weeder production and is made for entertainment purposes only. The show does not draw profit from the characters or materials discussed. All opinions are those of the host and do not reflect the views of any other individual, entity, or organization. The copyrights for any music or sound clips used lie with the copyright holders. They are used for entertainment purposes only and no infringement is intended. Ghost Rider, when you hear his name.